And I think this is really, a, I really, I'm trying not to say interesting because I say it all the time. Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. And this week we're discussing chapter eight of Mad Ship, Immersions. And it dives right back in with Kenneth drifting away and Vivacia screams out to Wintro, he stopped. And Wintro shrieks no, runs to try to save him because he mentions that fear of death had been all that had kept the pirate clinging to life when Wintro and Vivacia had persuaded him not to fear it. Kenneth had simply let go. So he rushes into the captain's cabin without knocking, so Etta is a bit upset at that, saying don't wake him, he's finally resting. And Winter says he's trying to be dead, and he's not breathing, and he actually is dead. Yeah, so, okay, before we get too far, I do want to point out, Kenneth is technically still alive, and yes. when we go into his point of view, he talks about how there's a silver thread or silver thread still attached to his physical body and pain that he is feeling during this time. Yeah. And we'll go into that more, but I just want to point out that even though that's happening in his consciousness where he is technically still alive cuz he could still go back to that physical pain his real body, on the outside world, he has no heartbeat. And is not breathing. Right. And I point this out because this feels very similar to what happens to Fitz yeah, whenever he is. goes into Night Eyes. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to point out that there's a possibility of the body being dead without the person being dead. I guess that doesn't prove how the body doesn't decompose. <laughs> well, it's not going to be instant. No, know. obviously not. But I was just thinking why I got really excited and pointed out was like, oh, look, here's an example from a different perspective of what happened to Fitz in the dungeon. But now that I'm thinking about it more, maybe not. I mean, I think it's fairly similar. It's just that his consciousness went somewhere else and not into a wood partner, right? Just went into like the skill stream or something like that. Slipped out of his body. But there's a, another part at the end of Tawny Man where Fitz is trying to resuscitate the fool and he goes into the fool's body and notes that even though the fool was dead, that there was still a bunch of life because of all the bacteria and things happening, right? So mm-hmm. I feel like the body's going to still be alive or recognize life for a while. Mm. And maybe that's what happens with people when they um, get lost in the skill stream, too, where the only reason they don't make it is because they don't have food to su- sustain their physical body. And you can live for a while without food, like a week without water and a couple weeks without food. So I don't know, maybe in this world, because it is a fantasy, maybe you don't need as much time with your physical body yeah. getting food and water. I don't know. But it does point to the fact that your body like, I don't know. It's just another example. I, guess. I feel like Winter might have mentioned that in the beginning about monks not returning properly or something yeah. and they were in catatonic states i don't know either way uh there's another link which is cool to point out so as we get the bomb drop of 
Kenneth being dead from Wintrow's point of view. We then switch over to Kenneth's point of view, where he is not dead, question mark, but he is, like we said, floating in an ether. So he talks about how he's drifting down gently like a leaf to the forest floor. He felt warm and comfortable. A thin silver thread of pain anchored him to his life. And he talks about how he notices that if he could just sever that tie, it would be better because it's not really worth his time to focus on the pain anymore. Right. It Nothing's worth his attention. He, let, he lets go of himself in this space and feels his consciousness expand. So the way he's talking about this moment, like Luke said earlier, feels like he's in this dream of the skill. Like he is now talking about how his thoughts seem so mundane and like a bunch of things jumbled into a sack. And now that he's here in this place, they're all spreading out and he can give each one of them individual attention. And he's noticing more details that he wouldn't have noticed before. And he's really, it it feels very much like someone who's becoming enlightened, so to speak. But in a way that he is trying to do, move away from his body. And I think this is a very important thing that we are talking about here with Kenneth going through because this is so reminiscent of the skill. This is like when Fitz loses himself in the skill stream whenever he does that, where it's easier to let them go than to hold on and keep yourself in a one piece. And so watching Kenneth struggle in the skill. Well, I guess not struggle because he's kind of willingly right. <laughs> letting himself go. But watching him go through this process and noticing how much of it is like the skill stream it is described to us from Fitz, it really made me think of a tinfoil hat theory. So I want you to put your tinfoil hat on and strap it tight. What if Kenneth's luck is just skill? Okay. So... <laughs> Kenneth is very lucky, we know. He is somehow able to read people or get people to tell him things that they're not used to or just very convincing. And I'm wondering if the reason for that is because he's so innately skilled that he is using the skill without realizing it and it's coming across as luck. So those feelings of knowing what's going to happen is because he's skilling and seeing other places or like getting a vibe from other places. And Like, he doesn't know that's what he's doing. He just calls it luck because he's never heard it called anything else. I don't know. I'm just saying, what if that's what this is? And that's why whenever he's dying, he's going into the skill stream like what seems to happen to other skill users. Interesting. I mean, first of all, uh, yes, great theory. Second of all, why why do you assume that only skill users go to the skill stream when they die? Because mm. everyone almost everybody has some modicum of capacity for skill, right? Right. There's a few rare instances where they don't. So I don't think we can assume one way or the other. And I feel like it's just not fully described as Fitz describes it because he's not aware or conscious of what this place is. Right, because Fitz can always be like, "Oh, this is the skill stream. I'm losing myself, but it's fine to drift away." Whereas Kenneth's like, "This place is nice." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose. But it's a that's a fun theory. 
Yeah, I don't know. I just, when I was reading this, it just was so strikingly similar to, I guess it's not the exact same. It just feels like two people experiencing the same thing yeah. and describing it in their own ways because they don't have any contact with each other and can't talk about the experience. And so I think that just made me really be like, oh my gosh, why would he be here? Why is it so similar? And what if that means that he is skilled? And what would that mean for his character? When would we have seen that manifest? And then I was like, oh, his luck. His luck is there throughout. And he is really good with it. (laughs) Interesting. That's cool. So I don't know. Just a thought that I had. Maybe it's not real, but Anyway, he is dying and he is losing himself in the Skill River or in the afterlife. Whatever this is that he is at, (laughs) he is expanding. As Kenneth is floating away and becoming one with the universe or whatever it is that he's doing, he feels a tug. An insistence that he could not resist drew him into itself. Reluctantly, he gave way to it, but once it possessed him, it did not seem to know what to do with him. So he talks about how when he is drawn in by this force, it is so striking and so insistent (laughs) that he can't ignore it. It's something drawing him to himself. And when he gets there, he's inundated with all these different memories or different versions of people. And he sees a woman combing out her long hair as she stared thoughtfully across the water he was Efren Vestret, and by saw he would bring his cargo through intact and on time, storm or no. He was a ship, the cold water purring past his bow, shining fish flickering below and stars glist- uh, glittering above him. Deeper, higher, and wider than all others, encompassing them all, but thin as a coat of shellac, there was another awareness, one that spread wide her wings and soared through a summer sky. That one drew him more strongly than any of the others did, and when it drifted away from him, he tried to follow it. No, someone forbade him, gently but firmly. No, I do not go there, and neither shall you. Something drew him back, and it held him together. He felt like a child supported in a mother's arm, protected and cherished. So, we know that this is Vivacia. Right. Vivacia is the one who has pulled him back and is holding on to him. And he is feeling through Vivacia all of what she is, the Vestrits and the dragon. Right. And I think for first-time readers, this is a pretty big indicator that obviously Wizardwood is directly related dragons. to dragons. Yes. Yeah. I We got that hint earlier this book whenever Rain and his mom are talking about the what the wizard wood is and how there's carcasses in the egg whatever it is and there were some for rereaders especially there are some foreshadowing and hints in the first book as well but it doesn't quite spell it out like this does yeah and so this is the first look we get at the official like there's a dragon in there and if you are a first time through i don't know if you can like understand how (laughs) no well (laughs) maybe. maybe if you're i mean if you piece it together. Yeah, you know, if you piece it together and you're super smart, chapter. definitely you can figure it out. But I, I think some people would still kind of be like, oh, how, how does this connect together? How are the dragons related? But clearly it's related to the wizard wood. So that's really exciting. Yeah. But we also get to see that through the struggle of Vivacia trying to keep him to her, she also has to keep herself separate. 
I guess, is how I'm reading this. You can disagree. <laughs> but I think this is something that pops up a lot, this chapter, that Vivacia has this sense of she doesn't really know who she is. She's just a cobble of a bunch of different people's memories and personhoods, and she has to be something that she chooses for herself out of those things. And so when she is trying to help somebody else and keep them together, she also has to make sure that she's not losing herself. And so that pops up as a lot of different people coming through, which I thought was really interesting. I can see that interpretation. Yeah, I didn't really have, I didn't put a thought to it, but that makes sense to me. So in this, Kenneth realizes that warmth and love coming from Vivacia. I don't know if he quite knows that it's Vivacia. I guess uh, right after he talks about how it's a ship, so he does. But there's a lot of love here, and he is really drawn to that, and he really feels that comfort and that protection coming over him. And he really gives into that dragon side by complimenting her, you know? He rolled over and burrowed into her, merging with her, becoming her. Lovely, lovely ship, whole to the cupping water, sails in a caressing wind. I am you, and you are I. When I am you, I am wondrous and wise. He sensed her amusement at his flattery, but flattery it was not. In you, I could be perfect, he told her. You're missing out on a couple of the context parts because this is him avoiding recognizing who he is as himself. He burrows into her to avoid himself because being encapsulated by that love he's like becoming aware of himself so he burrows into her and tries to merge with her and then at the end of that he's trying to dissipate himself into her being but she's holding him intact yeah yeah thank you for pointing that out it is a good point that feeling this love does remind him of being human and who he was and there is that sense while he's in this place that he does not want to go back to that. Right. And we don't exactly get why yet. It gets more into that. But there's a sense of him really trying to push away from Kenneth. He wants to be anything but that. And when the ship speaks, she is not speaking to Kenneth at all. She is talking to Wintrow. She says, you have to take him and put him back together. I have him here. Yeah, and she doesn't know how. She just has him. And Winter, of course, is very confused. He's like, I don't, what do you mean you have him here? How do you have him? How do you put him back? What's going on? <laughs> and because of that desperate plea where he is so confused and sounding so young, it really wakes something in Kenneth that brings him more to himself. It woke echoes of another boy's voice, just as desperate, just as pleading. Please. I can't do that. I don't know how. I don't want to. Please, sir, please. It was the hidden voice, the secret voice, the voice that must never be acknowledged. No one else must hear it. No one. He flung himself upon it, wrapped himself around it, and stilled it. He absorbed it into himself to conceal it. The divergence that was the key to him was restored. A shiver of anger ran over him that they had forced him to be himself again. Like that, she said suddenly to the other one. Like that. Find the pieces of him and put them back into one. More softly, she added, there are places where you could, where you almost match. Begin with those. What do you mean he matches me? How could he match me? I meant only that in some ways you resemble one another. 
You share more than you realize. Do not fear him. Take him. Restore him. And so while Kenneth is going through that realization, going through the pleading boy's voice and burying that, Wintrow is also working on the other side to try to gather Kenneth and gather him into one place. And so Wintrow is kind of pushing back against the idea here that Vivacia is suggesting that they're alike. <laughs> yeah. And then continues to try to piece Kenneth back together. Yeah, and we, through Kenneth, get this really interesting look at what the bond is between Vivacia and Wintrow. Yeah. So he talks a little bit about how their bond is really strong. Like the thing connecting them together is really strong and you can tell it's full of love and care for each other, but it also shows that they have been fighting and neither of them want to admit the love to each other. And it kind of makes Kenneth mad that they are so close to having what he's always wanted, which is this unconditional love and support from someone. And both of them are just too stubborn to accept that and to do anything to take hold of that relationship. Yeah, I do want to read the passage that you're yeah. describing right now because there's a pretty important line in it. it. says that they loved one another and yet struggled not to be one another. Resentments burned like isolated brush fire in the landscape of their relationship. He could not discern where one left off and the other began, yet each clearly asserted ownership to a greatness of soul that could not be encompassed by a single creature. The outstretched wings of an ancient creature both sheltered and overshadowed them, yet they were unaware of it. Blind, funny little creatures they were, fumbling in the midst of a love they feared to acknowledge. To win, all they had to do was surrender, but they could not perceive that. The beauty of what they could have been together made him ache. It was a love he had been seeking all his life. A love to redeem and perfect him. That which he most desired they feared and avoided. So again, reference directly to the dragon kind of overshadowing them both. And I wanted to make sure that was mentioned in our discussion here because to me it feels like there were one being inextricably intertwined and you can't really distinguish them but they claim ownership to each parts of them mm -hmm. right and then there's that dragon over over encompassing all of them feels to me like all of the bond partners for live ships are somewhat elderlings mm -hmm. and the dragons kind of recognize that oh like this is my person yeah. i've picked them to worship me or whatever yeah in in some way right that's fair. I mean, I like that reading. I like that idea that they're elderling in some way and that, you know, it really explains why they are so connected to each other. I guess it'll be really interesting to read the other or the Rainwild Chronicles because right. we'll get to see directly dragons and elderlings interacting together and that pull of that connection and see how similar that is. I guess we also get to see a little bit of that at the end of next book, right? Or maybe the end of this book. We get to see a dragon and elderlings who are drawn to her. Right. This series too. But yeah, it'll be really interesting to look out for how that, that bond works in comparison to this bond. So I like that. Thank you. And so Wintrow is pleading with Kenneth saying, come back, please, Kenneth. 
please choose to live. And as we learned in the Farseer trilogy, that name is important. It calls a sense of self and Kenneth realizes that and Wintrow realizes that as well, that it's working. Kenneth says the name was a magic. It bound and defined him. The boy sensed that. So he repeats the name, Kenneth, please, Kenneth, live. And memories are kind of gathering around Kenneth once again here. And Kenneth tries to do the same to Wintrow, but it just solidifies him more into Yeah, into the roles. Yeah. (laughs) Before we go on to see the memories that are tumbling forward, I do want to make a quick aside that the fact that names hold so much power and really like call you to yourself really is making me think of like witch magic from olden times when like you weren't supposed to give a witch your full name because it gave them power over you it's like giving oh, yeah, that it's, vibe <laughs> it's a classic you know trope <laughs> yeah classic fundamental of magic and fantasy right it's drawn from old fables and folk tales yeah. and things like that and things like you know uh Le Guin's earth sea is all about like names and words and then you have you know somewhat derivative but i still enjoyed the books like from Allegatia from uh, like Aragon from Christopher Paolini that has names being very important and yeah there's Name of the Wind obviously by Patrick Rothfuss that has names as magic it's a very important part of fantasy which kind of just is echoed here slightly yeah I don't know I really like it I, I like how it gives importance to a person and really like draws one into oneself yeah. I also just had the thought another tangent <laughs> That maybe this is why people in Buckkeep slash the Farseers all name their kids, especially nobility, like important names because they know names are important, but they don't remember why. So they're like, oh, it's because whatever you name your kid, that's what they become instead of being like, oh, yeah, that's like who they are, which I guess is kind of the same. They're in the same vein, right? Right. Um, And that like keeps them together. I don't know. I like that thought, though. Just following that. (laughs) random tangent to the end but we'll come back and here with kenna and wintrow there is a lot of memories like you said coming forward because of this binding with kenneth's name a curious thing happened then in wintrow's urgent welcome of his self-awareness and kenneth's sensing of the boy they mingled memories churned and tumbled free of their owners A boy wept silent tears the night before he was sent from his family to a monastery. A boy yammered in terror as he watched his father beaten unconscious while a man held him and laughed. A boy struggled and yelped in pain as a seven-pointed star was needled into his hip. A boy meditated and saw shapes of dragons in the clouds and images of serpents in swirling water. A boy struggled with his tormentor who throttled him into compliance. A boy sat long and still, transported by a book. A boy choked and gasped, resisting the tattooing of his face. A boy spent hours practicing the careful formation of letters. A boy held his hand to the deck and refused to cry out as his infected finger was cut from his hand. A boy grinned and sweated with joy as a tattoo was seared from his hip. The ship had been right. There were many conjunctions, many places where they matched. The congruency could not be denied. They overlapped. They were one another, and then they were separated separated again. Kenneth knew himself again. Wintrow cowered at the harshness that had been Kenneth's early years. 
In the next instant, a wave of pity and compassion overwhelmed Kennet. It came from the boy. Wintrow reached out to him. Ignorantly, he sought to fix the parts that Kennet had deliberately broken away from himself. This was you. You should keep it, Wintrow kept insisting. You cannot simply discard parts of yourself because they are painful. Acknowledge them and go on. The boy had no concept of what he was suggesting. That whimpering, crippled thing could never be a part of Kennet the pirate. Kennet defended himself from it in the same fashion he always had. With anger and contempt, he rebuffed Wintrow, severing that brief connection of empathy. In the moment before they parted, he became aware of the boy's sudden hurt at his act. For the first time in many years, he felt remorse burn him. Before he could truly consider it, he heard as from a great distance a woman's voice calling his name. So very, very interesting kind of series of events, a little bit more insight to both of their childhoods, and even though they do kind of line up in certain situations, the way that those memories are jumbled together, the first half of them do not line up at all. <laughs> That's what I thought too, but as you were reading it again, I kind of see how they do in ways. They do, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like the first couple is just like... You know, my father is beaten unconscious as I'm <laughs> as I'm held by a tormentor and oh, I read a book. <laughs> but hear me out. The father being to- hit by a tormentor whilst like the person laughs could also be Wintro. Because that did be. happen that's, that's in front true. of Wintro to Kyle. That's true. And Obviously, like the boy weeping silent tears at the monastery is Wintrow, but like, I think the tears thing connected them to an instance where they both had tears for a similar reason, maybe? I don't know. That's how I started reading it when you were going over it this time. I guess maybe because I was hearing it out loud. Yeah, taken from his family both times. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, this is Etta calling his name, so they've kind of mingled together, they've formed that connection, and we know that mingling of spirits is essential to Robin Hobb's plots. It happens in a lot of books, and mainly between Fitz and the Fool and Night Eyes, in various forms for like healing and things like that, but it is uh, very important of when people cross or mingle or stay in proximity to one another, they take something from each other they kind of are forever connected in a way yeah and i think that this really puts into my mind the thought of how dragons and elderlings work together that there have there must be some mingling of the soul on that level like they must connect in some way soul wise to be affected by each other so it's really interesting to get to see this happening just with humans and not with other beings. And like you said, we do see this later with Fitz and the Fool. And I think that's also different because Fitz and the Fool love each other and have been with, know, have known each other for right. years and are adults. And, you know, I don't know, there's like more awareness there. Whereas this is two people who barely know each other doing this, but then finding the similarities in between them and sharing. And I think it's really cool to get to see that interaction and really sad and really does paint a sympathetic picture for Kenneth. We get a lot more of him than we have up until this point. I think 
obviously something has happened in his past because when he's been feverish, he's been having these weird whimpering memories of no, please don't. And we just don't quite grasp why maybe he would have that. And I think especially for first time readers, this is an example of maybe more in depth look of who Kenneth is and why he has so much problem like this why he's the, careless this is the most history that we've gotten of kennet so yeah. far so i really like that and i like that it's done in a way where you can give him sympathy and see how similar he is to wintro right right so edda is trying to call him back as well saying kennet please you know please don't be gone kennet and Kenneth is coming to awareness in his own body now. There is pain that is in his body, and he's feeling that. There's a weight on his chest and leg ended in a sensation. His leg ended in a sensation of wrongness. So he's just becoming more aware of everything around him. He's gathered back in. He's back in his body. And of course, once he's back in his body and away from that expanded consciousness he once again refers to Etta as the whore who clutched his left hand weeping over it it was really too distressing to tolerate so he jerks tries to jerk his hand free and says do stop that please oh Kenneth she cried out in sudden joy you aren't dead oh my love water he said to her as much to be rid of her as for her for the sake of his thirst she sprang to the task hastening to the carafe on the sideboard across the room so he can feel Wintrow on his chest. He looks down, and the boy's eyes were shut. His face was a dreadful, pasty color, and tears streaked his cheeks. Wintrow wept for him. A sudden rush of feeling confused Kennet. The boy's head was on his chest, making breathing even more difficult. He wanted to push him away, but the warmth of his hair and skin under his hand awoke a foreign longing as well. It was as if he himself were embodied afresh in this lad. He could protect this boy as he had not been protected himself. He had the power to stave off the destructive forces that had once torn his own life apart. After all, they were not that different. The ship had said so. To protect him would be like saving himself. So I think this is a really important moment because this goes back to that line that all Kenneth really wants is a love that is so deep and connected that it saves him. He wants that connection. He wants to love and be loved. And seeing his similarities echoed in Wintro makes him, in this moment at least, want to give that a try. He wants to give the love that he has been wanting. He wants a love that will save. And so he is emanating that to intro. And I think that's a really, I guess, beautiful thing because I don't think this is coming from like a, um, like a sexual love kind of place. I think this is coming from like more a parental love sort of place. And so I want, I want He talks about it's a protector, right? Yeah. He wants to protect and shelter this boy from the harm that he encountered when he was a kid. Yeah. And that like, he wants to make sure that someone else isn't prey to this that has happened to him. And I think that's a really beautiful thing here. And obviously Kenneth's a really bad guy and he's going to do awful things going forward, but isolating him in this moment, it really is a beautiful thing that 
when he's half out of his mind, <laughs> he on like on a primal level just wants to love and be loved. And he's willing to give that love to Wintrow of all people and wants to use that to protect him. Yeah. He says it was a curious feeling, that power. It offered to sate a deep hunger that had lived nameless inside him since he had been a boy himself. Before he could wonder further at it, Wintrow's eyes opened. So yeah, it's just that that love, that probably that connection that he felt with Paragon when he was a boy. Yeah. That he hasn't experienced since. And even, I think, just again, that sense of what Wintrow and vivacia could have that sort of relationship he wants that too he wants right. that for himself and here's a, a moment where he can get that he can reach out and take that with wintrow and at least in this moment he that's what he wants so wintrow is blearily kind of waking up wandering around he's whispering in awe that says you're alive his voice wandered as if that a fever victim, but joy began to kindle in his eyes. You were all in pieces, just like a stained glass window, all in pieces. So many parts to a man. I was amazed. You still came back. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't want to die. His eyes sag shut and he blinks his eyes a little bit and suddenly seems to be more to himself a little bit, waking up from his trance saying I must have fainted, I went so deep in the trance, that's never happened to me before. But Berendal warned me, I suppose I'm lucky that I found my way back at all. I suppose we're both lucky. Yeah, so we get another glimpse there into the monastery and the magic the monks are using, and that this trance that we did see Wintrow in at the very beginning when we were first introduced him to is some version of the skill. At least that in the way that we understand the magics that we are shown, whatever this is, is connected tangentially to skill. And right. this is something that is dangerous to do in the way that he did, because number one, he's untrained. And number two, not everybody comes back when they go that deep. So again, we're getting a little bit more sprinkle of <laughs> flavor for the world and how the magic works. Yeah, and I think we see that firsthand with Fitz going into the Fool. Like, it, it's yeah. hard to jump back to your own body. Or we saw with Fitz in Night Eyes. It's hard to want to leave your safe place, your confines, right? Your spirit wants to stay in Night Eyes as it was. Right. And he had to be coaxed and kind of forced back into his dead body. So I'm sure Wintrow is kind of the same way. It's hard to find your way back once you're immersed in your work and fully exiting and as it was do like fixing Kennet yeah. in Vivacia's arms. <laughs> yeah. Definitely lots of layers to the magic and what has just happened. <laughs> so Kennet says my leg is wrong and Wintrow has to say like, oh, we numbed it. That's why it feels weird just to take the pain away. Uh, Etta is very short with Wintrow saying, you're in my way. And Kenneth realizes that Wintrow really isn't in her way. <laughs> she could walk around, but there's some tension there. And Wintrow says, oh yeah, sorry, and jumps back. And I don't know, it's just kind of like now, after the crisis is over, an awkward scene. Yeah, there's this interesting 
play here of jealousy and sort of possessiveness coming from Etta because she's seeing number one, can it be nice to Wintrow? I think, I think that's part of it. And then also they're just having this casual conversation and they just had this weird connection thing happen that Etta couldn't be a part of. And yeah. now they're he was talking. useful and Etta is not. Yeah. At this and, point. and so I think there's definitely that sense of, this is my man. And like, maybe he, she doesn't quite know like what Wintrow's deal is. Is he trying to go after Kenneth to get his attention away from her? Is this like some sort of tact where he can get more power? She just doesn't trust him very much. And so especially seeing how close they are in this moment and the ways in which he can help and she can't, like you said, I yeah. think we definitely see that coming through in her being so rude to <laughs> Wintro and Wintro recognizing that he is being too close or and intruding in the on the moment now. Yeah. So he recognizes that, stands up, and then takes two steps and collapses and faints on the deck. <laughs> right. <laughs> because he did just do a really hard thing. And I think this, again, is more proof to me, which I feel like I'm beating a dead horse here, but more proof that this is skill being used because he's so tired after using it in such like a deep quantity and right. such a taxing thing to do, put somebody back together, and he just faints again at uh, on the floor. <laughs> Etta gave an exclamation of annoyance. I'll call a crewman to take him away, she said. The sight of the unconscious boy on the deck distressed the pirate until she offered him the dripping cup. Her long-fingered hands was cool on the back of his neck as she held up his head. His thirst was suddenly all-consuming. It was ship's water, neither cold nor fresh, tasting of the barrel it had been stored in. It was nectar. He drank it down. More, he croaked when she took the cup away. Right away, she promised him. His eyes followed her as she returned to the water ewer. He noted in passing the limp boy on the floor. A moment ago, there had been something about him, something urgent he wished Etta to do. It had been important, but now he could not recall it. Instead, he was starting to float, rising off the bed. The experience was both unnerving and pleasant. The cup of water came back. He drank it all. I can fly, he observed to the woman. Now that the pain is gone, I can fly. The pain was anchoring me down. She smiled at him fondly. You're lightheaded, and perhaps a bit drunk still. He nods and can't keep the foolish smile off his lips. A rush of gratitude suffused him. He had lived with the pain for so long, and now it was gone. It was wonderful. His gratitude swelled to engulf the whole world. The boy had done it. He looked at Wintrow still sprawled on the floor. He's such a good boy, he said affectionately. We care so much about him, the ship and I. He was getting very sleepy, but he managed to bring his eyes back to the woman's face. Her hand was touching his cheek. He reached up slowly and managed to capture it. You'll take care of him for me, won't you? His eyes moved across her face, from her mouth to her eyes. It was hard to make his eyes see her whole face at once. It was too much work to refocus them. I can count on you for that, can't I? Is that what you want? She asked him reluctantly. More than anything, he declared passionately, be kind to him. If that is what you want, I will, she said, almost unwillingly. Good, good. I knew you would if I asked you. Now I can sleep. So Kenneth is really out of things. He 
when when Wintrow does collapse and faint, he's gonna say something, but he's distracted by water. <laughs> he drinks the water, sees Adam walk past him, is like, oh yeah, he took my pain away. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I think this is really interesting because it's really hard to tell where this attitude is coming from. We never see Kenneth in a good mood, number one. <laughs> well, maybe not good mood, but this good of a mood. And kind. Like, he is just being so sweet. I mean, mostly it's directed towards Wintrow, but he has even stopped calling Etta the whore. He calls her right. a woman and notes that she is being affectionate without any sort of malice or annoyance underlying that. He's just like, oh, she's he's cares. kind of affectionate back. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's so odd to me. I mean, I guess he did drink a ton of whiskey before this, right, for the pain and the surgery that was about to happen. So that's good. And maybe that's where that's coming from. It's just as odd that we've never seen him do that otherwise. But yeah, there's just a scene and it makes me feel really bad for Etta because even in this moment where he is being more kind to Etta than normal, he's not really giving her his attention and he's not praising her or giving her anything it's all Wintro that gets his complimenting like, her obedience. Yeah, complimenting her obedience and Wintro's usefulness. And it just makes me really sad for Etta because even in this moment where he's at like the peak of how nice he can possibly be, it's still not that nice to Etta. And she accepts that and is I mean, you can tell she's a little bit like upset with the fact that he's more worried about Wintro right now and that he wants Wintro to be taken care of. But ultimately, she still cares about him and is still going to, like, somehow find the good out of this situation to hold on to. It just makes me really sad. And I also think on some level proves that maybe he doesn't love Etta. I don't think he hates Etta. I just wonder if, like, because I know we've talked about maybe he just can't right. admit his feelings for her. But I wonder if it's more like he likes having her around and doesn't want to admit that to himself even. Yeah, she's useful. I think he does like her, but uh, I mean, still kind of. <laughs> yeah. You know, even even deep down, he's still a monstrous human being, right? So. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Well, we move over to Wintrow's point of view because Kenneth has passed out now. He is kind of sleeping a little bit, trying to recover a bit. And... Wintrow is opening his eyes with a pillow under his head and a blanket over him, but still laying down where he collapsed. Yeah. So, so Etta made him a little bit comfortable. Yeah, she was a lot nicer than she could have been. <laughs> He's kind of waking up groggy himself. He doesn't really know what was dream and what was memory, what happened in the past. He He's thinking about, you know stained glass window that was shattered with a scared boy and he restored the window and the boy was glad just a bunch of random imagery to him and he's just kind of confused you know there was a dragon and serpents a seven-pointed star that hurt horribly he awakened and Etta had been annoyed with him and he can't really put everything together he also mentions that he had pieced the man back together while Barandal and Vivacia advise him from behind a curtain of water. I wanted to talk about that specifically because 
Why does he think Berendahl was there? Because I think it's like in his, because he doesn't know reality from dreams. So I feel like him doing that and, oh, Berendahl warned me about the trance and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I think it's just him being confused about the events. About what was real and what wasn't. Yeah. Okay. Because he's probably going over what Berendahl had told him yeah. to help him, you know, through that thing. So That's fair. I don't know. I was just wondering if maybe Berendahl was somehow connected to him and was like, yeah, you got this from the sidelines. <laughs> <laughs> he closes his eyes. He gropes toward Vivacia, aware of her as he's always was whenever he reached toward her. And a wordless communication was constant. And he could feel that much. But she seemed distracted, not you know, disinterested in him, but intrigued with something else. And we know she's probably kind of consumed with Kenneth at this point. Yes. Yeah. It's good, though, here that instead of the hurt that normally is there whenever whenever Vivacia is not paying enough attention to, <laughs> right. to Wintrow, he acknowledges that it's not necessarily that she doesn't care about him or that she is annoyed by him. It's more that she just has something else taking up her attention. So that's good, I guess. <laughs> that's positive for their relationship. <laughs> so he, he tries to stand up. He's like, I can't do anything here. You know, Kenneth's alive. At least that much of Wintrow's dream had been true. He looks at Kenneth and he's like, okay, got to stand up, I guess. Gotta fight my way through a wall of vertigo as I sit up. <laughs> Never had a working trance so weakened him. He was still not quite sure what he had done or if he had truly done anything at all. In his work trances at the monastery, he had learned how to engage completely with his art. Immersed in it, the various tasks of creation became a whole act. It seemed he had somehow applied that to healing Kennet. But he did not understand how. He could not remember composing himself for a work trance. Once on his feet, he moved carefully toward the bed. Was this how it felt to be drunk, he wondered, unsteady and dizzy, seeing colors as too bright, edges of objects sharply defined? It could not be. This was not pleasant. No one would willingly seek out these sensations. And I want to stop there because isn't that how he's described at the end of like the first chapter with him after he's done doing his stained glass? And that's why we're like, oh, he's still coming out of the skill and he's still connected to everything. Uh-huh. That is how he is described. It's also how it's described whenever he is in that one um, city where he gets, like, chased away by people because he's, like, in the town part where he's, like, focusing so hard on the temple that everything becomes oh, yeah. distinct mm -hmm. and whatever. So he did willingly seek that out multiple times. <laughs> and also, it made me think about how Fitz describes coming out of using the skill sometimes and yeah. like how things are much more bright and it made me laugh that the line was no one would willingly seek out these sensations because <laughs> Fitz literally does that all the time he's like oh man I love when everything's crisp which like brings me to another like off-kilter thought that does not matter but like Fitz needs glasses and like the only reason he <laughs> likes the skill is because <laughs> it lets him see <laughs> how normal people see and you cannot convince me otherwise <laughs> Thoughts, everyone? Thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> so, so Wintro is approaching Kenneth to just try to see where it's, what's going on, look at his bandage a bit, maybe see if he's bleeding, anything's going on. And as he's reaching towards it, Etta says, don't wake him, please. Etta's voice was so gentle, he almost did not recognize it. He turned his whole body to see her. She was seated in a chair in the corner of the room. 
There were hollows under her eyes that he had not noticed before. Dark blue fabric overlay her lap while she plied a busy needle. She looked up at him, bit off a thread, turned her work, and began a new seam. So Winter says, I still have to see if he's bleeding, etc., etc. And Edda's like, nah, just leave him be, yeah. because he's not the last I checked. So You might he, as well let him sleep. Yeah, might as well let him sleep. He did awaken briefly right after you brought him back, gave him water, lots of it, and then he dozed off again. Wintero asks how long it's been, and Etta placidly tells him nearly all night, it will be dawn soon. He could not fathom her kindly manner toward him. It was not that she looked at him warmly or smiled, rather something was gone from her voice, an edge of jealousy or distrust that had always been there now, before now. Wintrow was glad that she didn't seem to hate him anymore, but he wasn't quite sure how to deal with it. Well, he said inanely, I suppose I should go back to sleep for a while then. Sleep where you can, she suggested. It's clean and warm in here. You're close to Kenneth in case he needs you. Thank you, he said awkwardly. He wasn't sure he wanted to sleep there because it was weird having a stranger watch him, but then he notices that she is sewing a pair of trousers and she's kind of eyeing him or sizing, so he knows that she's making him a pair of trousers to wear. Because he's yeah. still wearing his dirty monk or priest robes. Yeah, that are disgusting at this point, I'm sure. And also probably way too short on him. Like, right. he talks about how... He's the, grown a little bit. Not much. Well, he's always going to be small, but he yeah. has grown. <laughs> well, not even just the growth spurt, but, like, he talked about how, like, before the pirates even came, how the edges of oh, the bottom were, fraying, were, like, yeah. fraying, and so he had to, like, mend them by taking it up. Yeah. So I'm just imagining him in, like, a dress that's, like, to his knees. And, like, like a bathrobe, basically. Yeah, yeah, and everybody's like, whoa, don't show your legs, that's scandalous. So... <laughs> So yeah, it's definitely nice that he's getting pants, and he's really confused. And to be fair, he passed out, so he doesn't know that Kenneth has specifically asked for Etta to be nicer to him and right. to take care of him. I think Kenneth also doesn't remember that he has done this. <laughs> Later on, yeah. No, I don't think yeah. so. But in this moment, Etta has really changed and is trying to turn over a new leaf, and it is really interesting that she does it so well. And I don't know if it's just because she like has been paid previously to make men feel comfortable. So she just knows <laughs> she just knows how to talk to men in a way that like doesn't make them feel like she hates them, even if she does. But it is really nice to see that like there isn't that animosity. And it's funny kind of to watch Wintrow flounder in that because he now doesn't really know what to do right to talk to Etta when she doesn't have her defenses up like oh what what now so he goes back to his spot he mentions kind of like a dog back to its designated bed but he can't fall back asleep quite yet so he asks Etta how did you become a pirate he hadn't realized he was going to speak until the words popped out she took a breath then spoke thoughtfully there was no trace of regret in her voice I worked as a whore in a house in Divytown. Kenneth took a liking to me. One day I helped him kill some men who attacked him there. Afterwards, he took me out of the whorehouse and brought me here. At first, I was not sure why he had brought me to his ship or what he expected of me. However, after a time, his thought became clear to me. I could be much more than a whore if I chose to. He was giving me the chance. 
So it's really interesting to hear Etta's point of view of what happened. Right. I think this is the first view we get of why she thinks Kenneth brought her here. And it's kind of crazy that her interpretation is like he wants her there so that she can prove to herself that she is more than just a whore. She is she can be a pirate. She's successful. And like, I love that messaging and I love that that's what she's going for. And that's what's propelling her forward. It's giving her agency. It's giving her a chance to do something that she enjoys and find something that she's good at and like gives her that. I love that. However, it is so far from reality that it really makes me wonder, is she getting this idea because of the conversation she's having with the charm or is this something happening on her own? Her own rationalization of why Kenneth could possibly want her there. Kind of like her rationalization of, oh, Kind of made me feel again, yeah. but it was hate. But then I realized <laughs> I shouldn't hate him because he made me feel again. It's just yeah. kind of a weird roundabout. She's also broken yeah. <laughs> in some it's, ways. <laughs> it's a little bit sad. But I do wonder, too, maybe she gets this idea from the fact that whenever she tried to be more like a pirate or took more agency in what she was doing and made her own choices, Kenneth didn't really disparage her or tell, tell her, her no. yeah, tell yeah. her to stop tell the other crew members that he didn't like it in his head he's like what is she doing now (laughs) yeah like in his head he hates it and thinks that she should stop and she should know her place but out loud and to everybody else he's giving her respect and letting her do what she wants and so i kind of get where that's coming from but it also is kind of like oh baby if you could (laughs) read his head or read his mind like we can you would not (laughs) so intro is staring at etta here Her words had shocked him, not her admission that she had killed men for Kennet. He had expected that of this pirate. She had called herself a whore. That was a man's word, a shame word flung at a woman. But she did not seem ashamed. She wielded the word like a sword, slicing away all his preconceptions of who she was. She had earned her living by her sex. She did not seem to regret it. It roused a strange shivering of interest in him, She suddenly seemed a more powerful creature than she had just moments ago. What were you before you were a whore? Unaccustomed to speaking the word, he put too much (laughs) emphasis on it. He had not meant it to sound that way. He had not meant to ask that question at all. Had Vivacia nudged him to it? That is like, it's so funny. It's not because it's really mean, but like... He's like 14 or 15, has like a big crush, but like, oh, this is a weird topic. Like... Just imagining, like, Etta's being so nice and thoughtful, and then she, like, answers his question truthfully and is very open about it, and then he's like, oh, so you were a whore! And she, like, just imagining her head snapping up from the piece and looking at him, like, seriously? She frowned at him, thinking he rebuked her. Her eyes were straight and flat as she said, I was a whore's daughter. A note of challenge crept up into her voice as she asked in turn, and what were you before your father made you a slave on his ship? Yeah, so, like... (laughs) Way to go, intro. You Love watched this. it. <laughs> this is like another one of those things that just is like so play-like in my mind. I can imagine this whole interaction and like what's going on. I've set the stage <laughs> and it is so funny to me. And like it shouldn't be. It's. <laughs> I mean, it just shows it that just he's is. not very socialized, right? No. We, we talked about that before. He was squirreled away to the monastery when he was like eight and then was raised there for <laughs> five years or something like that. So what is he going to do? Yeah. He's not talking to women. 
<laughs> and he's at that weird age where like women are scary and different and they're not the same as men and, and so why am i attracted to this pirate who is definitely going to kill me and also kind of hated me before but now doesn't <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> it's a very interesting thing to watch Wintrow become more comfortable around human beings <laughs> but especially around edda and this interaction between them just brings me a lot of joy <laughs> even though the content itself is like a little sad and hard like hard to read slash talk about it it is cute that they are like trying to build that bridge of friendship right well she was trying to and then he yes. kind of <laughs> <laughs> he kind of ruined it with but i think that's just who he is and yeah. she doesn't know that yet and so like I, that's what makes it all the more funny is like he didn't mean it in a way and she probably is used to people like flinging that at her like an insult and so of course she's going to take it that way and i feel bad that that's her like she's so used to that that's just what she assumes mm-hmm. but it is funny from winter's point of view <laughs> winter says i was a priest of saw at least i was in training to be one she lifted one eyebrow really i'd rather be a whore her words ended their conversation irrevocably There was nothing he could say in reply. He did not feel offended. She had pointed up to the vast gulf between them in a way that denied they could communicate at all, let alone offend one another. She went back to her sewing, her head bent over her work. Her face was carefully expressionless. Wintrow felt he had lost a chance. Moments ago, it had seemed she had opened a door to him. Now the barrier was back, solid as ever. Why should he care, he asked himself. For the depth of his disappointment surprised him. Because she was a backdoor to influencing Kennet. Because he might need her goodwill someday, the sly part of himself suggested. Wintrow pushed the thought aside. Because she, too, is a creation of Saw, he told himself firmly. I should reach out to befriend her for herself, not for any influence she has with Kennet. Nor because she is unlike any woman I have ever known at all, and I cannot resist the puzzle of her. (laughs) Yeah, it's not because of that. It's because she's a creature of Saw. Mm-hmm. Only Saw. Okay, priest boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I thought the interjection of the sly part of him was really interesting because we don't... Have we seen that happen before where he has This is sly like you had with Malta being a little bit out of place for her character, a little bit too old and mature. Mm-hmm. This feels out of place for Wintrow for me. And I I don't know if it's Vivacia creeping in because he asked about that before. Right. Like, is this Vivacia's suggestion? I I don't think so because I think Vivacia's preoccupied with Kenneth and he mentioned that. Mm-hmm. So it just feels out of place for his character to me. I was wondering if it was an influence of the the piece of Kenneth he took Ooh, with him. Ooh, yeah. Maybe a little mingling of theirs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could be. So that's why I asked if we had noticed it before, because I was like, maybe this is evidence that Kenneth has left his mark on Wintrow. And Wintrow's... A little bit more paranoid, a little bit more <laughs> conniving, yeah. Yeah, and Wintrow's mark is that Kenneth was nice for once. <laughs> <laughs> True. True. I don't know. <laughs> but no, it that's, was just, that's a good idea. But I do agree that it did feel out of place until I was thinking about how they did just like connect souls. And so maybe it is leftover from Kenneth. And that's why he has that thought of like, oh, I need to connive and be sly. So Wintrow wants to actually be friends. He decides this. He closes his eyes, tries to restart everything, saying, please, can we try again? I'd like to be friends. 
Etta looked up in surprise, then her expression changed to a humorless smile. In case I can save your life later by intervening with Kenneth? No, he protested. That's good, because I have no influence over Kenneth that way. Her voice dropped a note. What there is between Kenneth and me, I would not use that way. Wintrow sensed an opening. I would not ask you to, I just... It would be nice to talk to someone, just to talk. So much has befallen me recently. My friends are all dead. My father despises me. The slaves I helped do not seem to recall what I did for them. I suspect Saadar would like to do away with me. His voice trailed away as he realized how self-pitying he sounded. He took a breath, but what came out next sounded even whinier. I'm more alone than I've ever been, and I have no idea of what will become of me next. Whoever does, Etta asked him heartlessly. I used to, he says. I used to be in a monastery. I used to know what I was going to be a priest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this part of the conversation between Etta and Wintrow, I think it's so important. I think having an intellectual conversation with someone and someone spell out to him how the real world works, basically, is so important for Wintrow. Oh, yeah. Because... He hasn't really gotten this. Nobody really talks to him. Nobody sits down and explains things from their point of view the way that he needs to like understand how things work because clearly that's how things stick with him and just the type of person he is. You know, that's what he needs. And he's getting that for the first time in Etta. And Etta is able to be that intellectual person to, you know, share words with and to share ideas and to show him things that he had been missing and... I think it's really beautiful that we get that from Etta specifically yeah. because I think it does again really like open her up as a person and because we see her through Kenneth's eyes so much and he labels her just as the whore and so much of her personality is that she is Kenneth's woman and like that is kind of like the surface level of who she is and we get little bits and bobs here and there of who she actually is under that layer of armor I think getting this now where she gets to be an intellectual and she gets to have thoughts and she's so eloquent, even though she doesn't really have an education, like, I think that's so important and really does make her more of a 3D person. And I yeah. really like that. So Wintrow says that, you know, I used to know where I was going in life. I loved what I did. And then my grandfather died and my father stuck me on this ship. And since then, I have had no say in my life. Every time I tried to take control of it, I only it, bent it in a stranger direction. Sounds normal to me, Etta says. He shook his head sadly. I do not know. Perhaps it is for other folk. I only know that it is not what I was accustomed to, nor what I expected. I keep trying to think of a way to get back to where I was, and restore my life to what it is supposed to be. But you can't go back, she told him bluntly. Her voice was neither kind nor unkind. That part of your life is over. Set it aside as something you have finished. Complete or no, it is done with you. No being gets to decide what his life is supposed to be. She lifted her eyes and her gaze stabbed him. Be a man. Discover where you are now and go on from there, making the best of things. Accept your life and you might survive it. If you hold back from it, insisting this is not your life, not where you are meant to be, Life will pass you by. You may not die from such foolishness, but you might as well be dead for all good your life will do you or anyone else. 
Wintra was stunned. Heartless as her words were, they brimmed with wisdom. Almost reflexively, he sank into meditation breathing, as if this were a teaching direct from Sa's scrolls. He explored her idea, following it to its logical conclusions. Yes, these thoughts were of Sa and worthy. Except, begin anew, find humility again. Prejudging his life, that was what he had been doing. Always his greatest flaw, Berendal had warned him. There was opportunity for good here if he just reached out toward it. Why had he been bent on returning to his monastery, as if Sa could only be found there? What had he just said to Edda, that the more he tried to take control of his life, the further he bent it? It was no wonder. He had been setting himself in opposition to Sa's will for him. <laughs> First of all, I just want to point out, this would be the weirdest reaction if I just like was talking to a kid and was like, listen, you can't go back. Like you just got to like accept life and move forward. And he like suddenly started breathing really heavily and just like, like, staring. <laughs> like, <sighs> <sighs> like, okay, buddy. Like, <laughs> Cause you know, he is like, <laughs> you know, he's just staring at her and breathing weird. And she doesn't know that he's meditating. <laughs> No, and he has all of these, like, oh, these great ideas. And he's like, oh, I, I suddenly grasp how the slaves must have felt when shackles were loose from their ankles and wrists. Okay, Wintro. Yeah, like, Her words had freed him. He would lift up his eyes and look around him and see where Saw's way beckoned him most clearly. And she's like, stop staring at me like that. There was both command and an edged uneasiness in Etta's voice. Wintro immediately dropped his eyes. Like, I, I'm sorry, I, I was not. I didn't, I didn't intend to stare. I just... You awoken me such thoughts. <laughs> it's just so goofy, and I love it because I it's feel like, like stop staring at me like that. <laughs> it feels like when <laughs> when like your younger sibling's friend comes over, and like they're just like weird, and you're like, don't do that. <laughs> it just is so fun. I don't know. Like it's, oh, I love this chapter because it's. It's got so many like moments of levity like this in it. And I feel like we don't get that a lot in this series in general, and especially not this book. And so to get this like weird moment of like, don't look at me like that <laughs> just brings extra joy. <laughs> Where were you taught such things? Wintro asks Etta. And Etta's like, such things as what? There was definite suspicion in her voice now. <laughs> like, what do you mean taught such things? <laughs> yeah, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> such things as accepting life and making the best of it. Spoken aloud, it seemed such a simple concept. Moments ago, those words had rung for him like the great bells of truth. It was right, what they said. Enlightenment was merely the truth at the correct time. In a brothel. Even that revelation opened his mind to light. Then Sa is truly there, as well in all his wisdom and glory. She smiled, and it almost reached her eyes. To judge from the number of men who grunt out her name as they finish, I would say Sa is definitely there. <laughs> Wintro looked aside from her. The image was uncomfortably vivid. <laughs> I love it. Like, I love everything about this interaction. I love that, like, I think Edda's starting to pick up that He's just a kid and he yeah. is so innocent and does not know. Like, he's not a bad guy. He's not trying to scheme and, you know, like, whatever. He's just this kid trying to figure out how life works. And a very sheltered kid 
doing that. And so it's very funny. Right. Um, I also really liked that we have Wintro referring to Saw as him. Like, oh, then he is there and her saying, and like Edda saying, yeah, she was there. Yeah. And because, because we know. Saw is the nameless. Right? Yes. Saw. It's one and everything. Yes. Saw is she, he, they, them. We love it love saw but i thought it was really interesting to see that there and neither of them challenged the other it wasn't like right. a disagreement it was just yeah and another reminder that saw is mm-hmm. everything yeah i i'm becoming a saw acolyte i don't know i started <laughs> saying like it's not of saw when i don't want to do things <laughs> and being like praise saw That's you know taking saw's name in vain come on <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have those commandments okay <laughs> emily you gotta do the dishes that's not of saw yeah. <laughs> Mm, I checked with Saw. <laughs> the contradiction is. <laughs> I don't know. So, so I've Wintro, been converted. <laughs> Wintro very uncomfortable with this line of questioning, but still asks further questions and says, well, blurts out, as Robin Hobb says, it must be a hard way to make your living. Do you think so? She laughed aloud, a brittle sound. That's a surprise to me to hear you say that. But you are still just a boy. Most men tell us they wish they could earn their bread on their backs. They think we have it easy, dealing in pleasure all day. Wintrow considered it for a moment. I think it would be very hard to be that intimate and vulnerable to a man one had no true feelings for. For just an instant, her eyes went pensive and dark. After a time, all feelings go away, she said in an almost childish voice. It's a relief when they do. Things get so much easier. Then it is no worse than any other dirty job, unless you get a man who hurts you. Still, one can get hurt working anywhere. Farmers are gored by their oxen. Orchard workers fall from trees. Fishermen lose fingers or drown. Her voice trailed away. Her eyes went back to her stitching. Wintrow kept silent. After a time, a pale smile came to the edges of her mouth. Kenneth brought my feelings back. I hated him for it. That was the first thing he taught me to feel again. Hate. I knew it was a dangerous thing. It is dangerous for a whore to feel anything. Knowing that he made me feel emotions again just made me hate him even more. Yep, not the greatest start to a romance there, Adam. No. (laughs) I mean, I know people love the enemies to lovers kind of trope, but that's... This is not that. (laughs) And that shouldn't be in real life usually either. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Especially when it starts out viscerally like, I hated him. And then he made me feel hate, so I hated him even more. (laughs) Well, I think the thing that works with a lover's or enemies to lovers <laughs> lovers to enemies a much better trope i would love to see that but anyway <laughs> an enemies lover trope works so well because they like think that they're polar opposites and then like find the thing that makes them realize that they're similar right. after all and here with etta and kenneth we have this relationship that started with him calling her smelly in front of everybody and like her coworkers and other clients and then like insisting she bathe and you know like just being a jerk overall yeah. and like he is a jerk the interactions we've seen between them he is not nice to her he doesn't treat her like a human being and 
she's like, yeah, I definitely hated him. But then I knew it was true love. Like, no, girl, <laughs> it's not. It's not true love. She describes the day that they met where he came in. This is the first time that he had come into Betel's Bagnio. And he was dressed very fine and was very clean. But she still knew who he was because everyone around Divi Town knew who Kenneth was. He did not come to the brothel like most men did with a friend or two or his whole crew. He did not come drunk and boasting. He came alone, sober and purposeful. He looked at us, really looked at us, and then he chose me. She'll do, he told Betel. Then he ordered the room he wanted and the meal. He paid Betel right there in front of everyone. Then he stepped up to me as if we were already alone. He leaned close to me. I thought he was going to kiss me. Some of the men do that. Instead, he sniffed the air near me. Then he ordered me to go wash myself. Oh, I was humiliated. You would not think a whore can feel humiliation, but we can. Nevertheless, I did what I was told. Then I went upstairs and did as I was told, but no more than that. I was in a fury and was cold as ice to him. I expected him to slap me, refuse me, or complain to Betel. Instead, it seemed to suit his wishes. She paused. For a time, the silence rang in Wintrow's ears. He knew he did not want to hear any more about this, yet he avidly hoped she would say more. It was voyeurism, pure and simple. A keen curiosity to know in detail what went on between a man and a woman. He knew the physical mechanics. Such knowledge had never been concealed from him. But knowing how such things are done does not convey the real knowledge of how it happens. He waited, looking at the deck by her feet. He dared not lift his eyes to see her. And he says that, or she says that every time after that, it was the same. He came, chose me, told me to wash, and he used me. He made it so cold. The other man who came to the Bagnio, they'd pretend a bit. They would flirt and laugh with the girls. They would tell stories, see who listened best. They act as if we had some say. They made us compete for them. Some of them would even dance with the whores or bring little gifts, sweets, or perfumes for the ones they liked best. Not Kenneth. Even when he began asking me for me by name... It was still just a transaction. So she kind of takes a break, takes a breath, looks like she's going to say more, and then goes back to her sewing. Wintrow can't think of anything to say, so they kind of sit there in silence. Soon it would be dawn, and he's kind of thinking, maybe I should sleep, but I got to do some stuff. And then he felt a brief stirring of triumph. He had cut Kenneth's leg off yesterday, and the pirate was still alive today. He had done it. He had saved the man's life. He kind of reflects on that, so that's, you know, I should be humble. <laughs> yeah, that's not of saw. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a little bit of arrogance there. It's false pride. And he's considering the link that Vivacia has with Kenneth. It's like, I don't really want this. So there's kind of a long silence between Ada and Wintrow at the end of this story here. And he's reflecting a little bit on what's around him, what he has to do, and what has come out of this situation. And then Etta makes a tiny sound, an intake of breath. Wintrow swings his attention back to her, but she didn't look at him. She kept her eyes focused on her stitching. Yet there was a quiet glow of pride about her. Plainly, there was something she had well considered and decided to say to him. When she spoke, he listened silently. I stopped hating Kenneth when I realized what he was giving me each time he came. Honesty. He preferred me, and he did not fear to show that. In front of everyone, he chose me every time. He did not bait me to simper and flirt, 
I was what he wanted, and I was for sale, so he bought me. He was showing me that as long as I was a whore, that was all we could ever share. An honest transaction. An odd little smile crossed her face. Sometimes Bettel would offer him other women. She had many. Some were fancier women, far more beautiful than I am. Some were women who knew exotic ways to please a man. Bettel sought to win his favor that way. She did that with the house patrons to keep them loyal to her. She offered them variety and tempted them to acquire new preferences. I knew it did not please her to see Kenneth always come to me. It made her feel less important, I suppose. Once in front of everyone, she asked him, Why Edda? So lanky, so plain, so ordinary. I have courtesans trained in the finest houses in Chalced, or if you prefer innocence, I have sweet virginal things from the countryside. You could afford the best in my house. Why do you prefer my cheapest whore? The tiny smile reached at his eyes. I think she thought to shame him before the other patrons there. As if he could ever have cared what they thought. Instead, he said, I never confuse the cost of something with its value. Edda, go and wash yourself. I shall be upstairs. After that, all the other whores called me Kenneth's whore. They tried to make it a name that stung, but it never bothered me. Obviously, Kenneth was a deeper man than Wintrow had supposed him to be. Most sailors did not look beyond a whore's face and figure to make a choice. Kenneth evidently had. On the other hand, perhaps the woman was deceiving herself. He glanced up at Etta's face and then away. Uneasiness swept through him. Whence had that thought sprung? For an instant, he had felt the sting of jealousy. Had it been from the ship herself? He felt the sudden need to speak with Vivacia. So there again we have Wintrow's intrusive thoughts of jealousy. Yeah, so I think this is his own jealousy. I think so too. I mean, it's obvious now that he has a crush on Etta, mm-hmm. a growing attraction to her that he can't explain. And she's just a puzzle, <laughs> right? She's a creature of Saw, so that's why he's here talking to her. Right, that's why he cares. <laughs> but yeah, there's that jealousy that... She is Kenneth's whore now, right? Like, that's when that spike of jealousy, that uneasiness of like, oh, maybe she's deceiving herself. What I, I don't know. What if that's not jealousy? What if, again, that's Kenneth? That bit of... I know, but it's still Wintro, right? It's not yeah, that no, it's no, like no. a piece of Kenneth that's stirring. It's maybe thoughts that have influenced Wintro's mind. So it's still, still Wintro's thought of like, that's a little jealousy or... A little bit of, I, I think he sees through it right there, through right. to the heart of everything. Like, yeah, she is deceiving herself. So <laughs> Yeah, no. And I think, I think you're right. He is seeing through. And so maybe it doesn't have anything to do with like the Kenneth and him sharing soul. Maybe that is just a mean thought he had out of jealousy, but a true thought nonetheless, because it is true, right? Like just because he's treating this as a transaction doesn't mean that's a romantic thing. Obviously, Kenneth was a deeper man than Wintrow had supposed him to be. <laughs> right. No, I think it's it's interesting how we get these little moments where Wintrow peeks behind the curtain, so to speak, with like Kenneth and seeing who he really is and just, you know, but yet doesn't use that to, I don't know, be wary of Kenneth <laughs> right. at all ever. He's like, oh, that's a bad thought. <laughs> no, it's not. You're actually like that's a great thought. So <laughs> But yeah, so we see this moment where this whole story 
hasn't really been wholesome or a meat cute. No, it, it's literally the same thing over and over from Kenneth's point of view. But Etta has a realization after multiple times of like, oh, he's giving me honesty and a transaction. And all will ever be if I'm still a whore is a whore and he's buying me honestly. So he's giving me a chance to not be a whore. Then he must mean he loves me. You know, it's yeah. just like it is deceiving herself. Yeah. And to be fair, I can see how it would be nice to have an honest patron because that's in reality, it is her job. That's right. what she's there to do. Yeah. And it is just a job. And so for him to treat it that way, it would be something so different and yet kind of refreshing after a while to be like, oh, yeah, like now I get to go to this part of my job where I don't actually have to pretend. It's like that one customer you get as a regular when you're working customer service that like, doesn't care if you are yourself and it's so refreshing yeah they're just just, like in and out they know what they want they pick out some socks and a pair of jeans you don't have to ask them (laughs) how they're doing or make small talk they just like nod at you and you're like yep we're here to do a transaction love that and so (laughs) i get it (laughs) but it is really hard too because obviously at a like what i'm picking up from what's not being said here is that Etta isn't really well-liked in this place. She seems to be a little bit bullied and, like... She's the cheapest whore, Yeah, I don't know. So it does make me sad. Like, clearly, things weren't great for Etta, which we already knew. But, like, even more so, they weren't great. And... I mean, that probably ostracized her a little bit more. But she took comfort, I guess, from it. Yeah, because she knew what to expect and it's not something different and... You know, so I I get it. And obviously, I feel like she's applying, not obviously, but I feel like she's applying this whole excuse, if so to say, of that's all I ever be as long as I was a whore is more of looking back and being like, that's why he took me with here to prove that I was more than that. And it's not something she necessarily thought in the moment. Yeah. I don't know. Well, Wintrow has heard the story. And stands up and he's like, well, I, it's, you know, it's almost dawn. I got to check on Vivacia and do some stuff. And Edda is like, you know, I'll, I'll send for you if he needs you. Because Wintrow's asked to be sent for if Kenneth wakes up. And with that reply, Wintrow's like, maybe that's what the story had been about. And the conversation to make clear to Wintrow her prior claim upon Kenneth. Did she see him as a threat somehow? Wintrow decided he did not know enough about the woman. And she finishes the trousers and says, I hear these are for you. He steps forward to take him and she kind of tosses it. It hits him awkwardly in the face. (laughs) Thank you, he said uncertainly. She didn't really acknowledge it. Instead, she opened up a closed chest, pulled up a shirt, said, here, this will do for you. It's one of his old ones. It's a very good weave. He knows quality, that one. I am sure he does, Wintrow replied. He chose you, as you have told me. It was his first effort at gallantry. Somehow it did not come out quite right. The comment hung crookedly between them. Etta stared at him, sorting the words to see if they held an insult. The heat of a blush rose to his cheeks. What had ever possessed him to say such a thing? He tossed him the shirt and opened wide. White bird a wing. It collapsed over his hands, heavy cloth, strong yet supple. It was a very good shirt, much too fine to dispose of so casually. Was there, he wondered, a message here? One that Etta scarcely knew what she conveyed? Thank you for the clothing, he said, determined to be polite. So, 
here we have Wintrow doing exactly what Edda was just doing. <laughs> yeah, trying to find some meaning in... Yeah, reading into <laughs> a thing of a person that he has found himself having a crush on. That maybe he can't quite admit he has a crush on. Just like I feel like Edda couldn't really admit having attraction to Kenneth at first. Right. And then decided that like she does have attraction, so it's fine. But And Edda's trying not to like the kid because... He is competition, right? Yeah. For Kenneth's affection, and she doesn't know if she can trust Wintrow. Right. And doesn't like that he was so needed by Kenneth. And and that she was useless in that situation. Yeah, but I think especially what you said about this being another vessel for Kenneth's affection, which makes Kenneth's affection very finite. I think that's kind of the bigger issue, right? And that really does speak to who Kenneth is. Like, he only has so much affection he can pretend to give (laughs) with one more person in in the line to get that, it's less for her. And she is right about that in some ways. So I do understand where she's coming from, but also wish she would see that that's not normal. And like, People should be able to give affection limitlessly to everyone. Right. But she doesn't. And there's this awkward, you know, like, teenage boy trying to flirt with somebody, but it's the first time they're flirting and it's awkward. Yeah. <laughs> and he's, I mean, it's a good line. It's it's cute. <laughs> like, yeah, obviously he knows equality. You're here. He picked you. And then it's like, oh, no, wait. <laughs> <laughs> she gives him the shirt and says... Kenneth wants you to have them, I am sure. You will be looking after him. He demands cleanliness of those around him. You should take a time today to wash yourself, including your hair. I'm not, he began and then stopped. He was dirty. A moment's reflection made him realize he stank. He had cleaned (laughs) his hands after he cut off Kenneth's leg, but he had not washed his entire body for days. I will, he admitted humbly. What is with this trio and liking somebody because they call you out for being stinky? Like, <laughs> what is the deal? <laughs> so, <laughs> Start of every meat cute in this. <laughs> Edda's, all of Edda's meat cutes are something to do with somebody being called stinky in a way that's a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> and so he exits out the, uh, the cabin. He's taking in the sight on deck and realizing that, yes, everything is kind of in disarray. There are snags on the wood. There's blood stains, but I don't recognize those anymore. My my face just kind of, or my eyes just kind of glance past that because it's normal. And that's kind of following the thought of he didn't really realize that he stank. It just kind of, that's what he was living in. Yeah. And now he's realizing he has more responsibilities to take care of. Right. So he walks out. And he walks past a couple of the map faces. And one of them is Dej. He recognizes yes. it's one of the ones, uh, one of the people that Ada asked to help hold down Kennet. Yep. He always seemed to be with the younger, quicker Sela. She scarcely noticed Wintrow as they brushed past him, so caught up with one another. That too had begun to happen. He should have expected it. After any disaster, that was always the first sign of returning hope, men and women pairing off and coupled. He looks back after them, wondering where they would find privacy, and then idly is like, oh man, I'm kind of like staring after them. Let's just keep going. Yes. Windrow has a steering problem. <laughs> he just doesn't realize he's doing it, which is fair, because I do that all the time, but 
<laughs> he is definitely in this moment, just really taking in the fact of everything that's happened and how he needs to go forward. He's really yes. taking what Edda told him to heart, you know? Right, right. There is no going back. There's only going forward. And I like that he acknowledges that. And I like that he is now trying to be a better person by, number one, acknowledging the slaves. And instead of calling them map faces continu- continuously, deciding to put their names and faces into his head. Right. Like that's, they have names and that's how I need to be referring to them. So he kind of orders his life, sets a schedule, realizes that he needs to step forward into this role. And the first thing is to confer with Vivacia. And eventually also check on his father. But right. talk with Vivacia first. And when he gets to her... He, he realizes that it looks like she's kind of keeping watch or looking out at the cove that they are now anchored in and realizes that probably is what she's doing. You know, she's looking to see if Sorcor's boat has made it to them. I worry that the other ship will never find us, she spoke aloud in answer to his silent thought. How will they know where to look? Kind of a brief exchange where Winch was like, oh, they've sailed together before, I'm sure they have ways of finding each other. And besides, Kenneth could be better in a little bit, and he might be able to direct us out anyways. Perhaps, Vivacia conceded grudgingly, but I would feel better if we were underway already. He has survived the night, that is true. Nevertheless, he is far from strong or cured. Yesterday, he died when he stopped struggling to live. Today, he struggles to cling to life. I do not like how his dreams twitch and dance. I would feel better if he were in the hands of a real healer. Her words stung just a bit. Winter knew he was not a trained healer, but she might have spoken some word of admiration at how well he had done so far. He glanced down at the deck where he had performed his crude surgery. Kenneth's blood had followed the contours of his supine body. The dark stain was an eerie outline of his injured leg and hip. It was not far from Winter's own bloody handprint. The mark had never been erased from the deck. Would Kenneth's shadow stay as well? Uneasily, Wintrow scuffed at it with his bare foot. It was like sweeping his fingers across a stringed instrument, save that the chord he awoke was not sound. Kenneth's life suddenly sang with his own. Wintrow reeled with the force of the connection, then sat down hard on the deck. A moment later, he tried to describe it to himself. It had not been Kenneth's memories, nor his thoughts or dreams. Instead, it had been an intense awareness of the pirate. The closest comparison he could summon was the way a perfume or scent could suddenly call up detailed memories, but a hundred times stronger. His sense of Kennet had almost driven him out of himself. Now you glimpse how it is for me, the ship said quietly. A moment later, she added, I did not think it could affect you that way. This is where we learn that Vivacia, that's how Vivacia feels Everything that seeps into her, all the blood that has been spilled, are all of those extremely intense sensations of somebody's presence. Yeah. Their sense of self seeping into her. And she doesn't really get to get away from it. No, no. It's stuck to her. Yeah, she says blood recalls identity. Yeah. Um, And before we go into that, I do want to quick point out that their relationship is still very rocky. And it kind of seems worse now than it did before now well they were going through 
you know, turmoil, right? And that made them bond a little bit closer. The mm-hmm. storm, first of all, and then the pirates, and then that's yeah. all that they had to cling to. And now things have settled down, and she has a new fascination with Kenneth, and a new realization that she needs to find herself in all of this, and a right. struggle with identity. And that's made things slow down for them, right? Yeah. More time to reflect on what it means to be beholden and attached to somebody at the hip all the right. time when that person is forcing their identity upon you. Fair. She kind of resents him for that. Yeah, no, definitely. But I do think we are seeing kind of the worst <laughs> of their relationship. Well, maybe not the worst, worst, but it's I mean, not yeah, good. he did abandon her. At one yeah. Point. <laughs> but like, at least the worst on Vivacious end. Right, yeah. And seeing that she kind of doesn't really have any more sympathy left for Wintro. She doesn't have, she doesn't really care about Wintro in the way that she did at the beginning and that she's willing to hurt his feelings because she cares more about Kenneth now than she does him. I I don't know about that. She's more fascinated by Kenneth right now. I feel like she still cares about Wintro more than Kenneth, but it's not a priority. Yeah, she's giving him the... Sorry, I should have said she's giving him the idea that she cares more about Kenneth yeah. than she does about him, which is kind of true and <laughs> how she acts at the moment. Like she is more caught up in whatever Kenneth's doing and how Kenneth's feeling and what Kenneth's going through and why Kenneth is the way that he is than like doing that for Wintro. And to be fair, Wintro did like push her away and drive her to want to do that. So like right. it's not like Wintro is innocent little baby boy that needs <laughs> her. It just Yeah. yeah it I feel bad for them. And then he brushes that blood and he experiences Kenneth and that experience almost pushes himself out of his own body. And Vivacia says like, yeah, that's how you experience that. You can set him aside and say, that is not I, that I am me, that I'm not Kenneth, but I don't have that. I am no more than wood impregnated with the memories of your family. The identity you call Vivacia is one I have cobbled together for myself When Kenneth's blood soaked into me, I was powerless to refuse it, just like the night of the slave uprising, when man after man entered me, and I was powerless to deny any of them. That night, all the blood was spilled. Imagine being drenched in identities, not once or twice, but dozens of times. They collapsed on my decks and died. But as their blood soaked into me, they made me the reservoir of who they had been. Slave or crew member, it made no difference. They came to me. All that they were, they added to me. Sometimes, Wintro, it is too much. I walk the spiral pathways of their blood, and I know who they were in detail. I cannot free myself from those ghosts. The only more powerful influences are those of you who possess me doubly, with your blood soaked into my planks and your minds linked to mine. I do not know what to say, Wintro replied lamely. Do you think I do not already know that? Vivesha replied bitterly. And so she's saying here that like, yeah, the only thing that is more powerful in my personality and my sense of self is people who've linked in my mind as well. And she's referring to Wintro, but also Kenneth now. Right. So that's important to know that Kenneth is making up a huge part of her personality as well. Yeah, that there is that. Well, especially because she's so fresh, so so new. Like, right. she didn't have a ton of identity in her to begin with. She only has three generations of Vestrits. And that's not a ton to go with. I mean, 
Some of the other ships have several more generations, and I don't know if they could handle this either, you know? Right, yeah. And we see with Paragon what happens when a young ship is covered in blood and not really given a good way to go on, I guess. Like, it's not... It does manifest differently in Paragon because he has two different dragons as well. But still, yeah, it's... Definitely not good. (laughs) No, but I do think, especially, this is like just a thought I had. I wonder if the fact that they were both young ships, they were freshly awakened and then had the blood to push them out of their, like enough to push them out of their being, of what they had cobbled together of the people who had been on their ship before them. I wonder if that's how they found the dragons. Let more of those. I, I feel like yes, but also I seem to recall other live ships somewhere in the series kind of chiming in like, oh, yeah, we all have those kind of dreams. Yeah, but I think but I wonder, I guess we'll never know. But I wonder if the reason why it torments Vivacia and and Paragon more is because they don't have more of a personality to pull from. You know what I mean? Like yeah, they have too much human pushing yeah. them and they're so young that there's nothing to like keep them anchored in who they are. So it's not just a dream. It's, Oh, that's who I was. Right. I don't know. So I just, yeah. Makes me wonder. And I mean, they both try to shy away. It seems like a weird thing that all the ships have in common, that they all shy away from the weird dreams of when they were dragons. Like they don't want to probably uncomfortable. That. Well, yeah, definitely, because what does that say about their owners that made them not right. that, I guess? Yeah, I don't know. So I just had that thought and mm-hmm. thought I would present it. So Wintro is, has sunk into a, an uncomfortable silence with Vivacia because he can feel that bitterness, that resentment coming from Vivacia here. He creeps away quietly with his news clothes bundled under his arm, But he took the knowledge with him that wherever he went, Vivacia would always be there and he would always be with Vivacia. He couldn't free her from his presence. And he reflects on what Etta said and yeah, accept life as as it comes. That's a great sentiment, but right now it's really hard to do. And he says, if this be your will, Osa, I know not how to endure it gladly. He said quietly. It was a pain to feel Vivacia echo the same thought. So he knows that he's being a burden and something of a pricking point between the two. And he wants to get away from Vivacia to comfort her, right? To let her be. But he can't and he feels bad about it. And Vivacia's like, yep, I wish you could as well. Well, I don't think he just wants to get away for her benefit. I think he's also annoyed with her, right? Like, I feel sure, like a little bit. his feelings are being hurt. He doesn't feel like she cares anymore. And she is taking everything personally to a level that, like, it's odd because she can know his heart and know that he's not coming at it from a mal- like a malicious place. And yet she takes it that way anyway and just doesn't like she takes it as an offense. She doesn't like that he had nothing to say to her. And what was he supposed to do? He had never known. And this is something new. And he's the type of person who needs to like chew on that information to have a more thoughtful response. And she still, after all that time, like doesn't 
I don't know if she doesn't like realize that or she just doesn't care. I, I think it's because he had the time to realize that. He had the time to connect with her and yeah. refused to for the months and months that they had together. That's fair. So it, it's truly a built up resentment of, and we talked about it, a role reversal of where yeah. they were. He is now more attached to her than she is to him. And at the beginning, she was more attached to him than he was. Yeah. No, but I definitely feel bad for them because there's clearly this sense of like not knowing what to do on Winter's part. And I feel like he is also kind of crabby about it. You know what I mean? Like he misses when Vivacia cared about him. And so I kind of read this last line of the if this be your will, saw, I know not how to endure it gladly as like him trying to be snarky and like kind of like hit Vivacia where it hurts. And then to hear her echo the same thing hurt his feelings in turn because like she doesn't even want me here anyway. So like he thought it would hurt her feelings and it just hurt his own. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's the kind of vibe I read from it. Mm. But hearing it from me of like maybe he was trying to be like, oh, I wish I could give her space. And she's like, yeah, I do, too. That's also good. I don't know. About the same sentiment either way. Yeah. Works out to be the same about where she resents him. (laughs) So the next part of this chapter, we have Marietta finding them in this little cove that they have uh, parked in. Yes. We're doing a little bit of a time jump. Yep. um, Sunset now. And it was dawn earlier. Mm -hmm. And we thankfully got to miss out on... (laughs) the Kyle bit where he goes in and Kyle cannot accept reality. He like doesn't know what's going on. He, well, not that he doesn't know what's going on. He just can't accept that they're trapped and there's no getting out of this. The pirates won. He wants Wintrow to go and learn as much information and spy basically. Yeah. So that he can pick something to like find a way to fix this. And Wintrow talks about how, Kyle is very draining right now because he seems to think that Wintrow is his only subject. Yeah, confinement and pain had made Kyle more of a tyrant than ever, and he seemed to believe Wintrow was his only remaining subject. In truth, the boy felt almost no loyalty to him at all, save for a residue of duty. Wintrow thinks it's laughable, basically his plot to spy, but uh, is not really going to change the reality in Kyle's head because he doesn't think he can. <laughs> yeah, reality just, will do that for him. Yeah, like and he's just going about his business of like trying to feed him, trying to bandage him. So, at least we miss out on that yes. during this time skip. <laughs> yeah, and Wintrow is on his way to Etta because Etta has requested him and said that Kenneth wants him. Yeah, so he's watching the uh, the Marietta pull up and we're reminded again that these are dangerous people. They're not just you know, simple sailors. They have yeah. their trophies from the fight. They have decapitated heads hanging over the side and everyone's cheering like, yay, this is great. And Dedge comes, pulls his arm and says like, they want you in the cabin. Right. And Wintro does talk about why he understands why the people are excited about seeing the trophies of the people's heads right. because they are Chalcedian and it represents, you know, not the, only Satrap yeah, who condoned slavery, but but the people who were making slaves to begin yeah. with. So it's like he he can recognize that there's a reason that they're happy and that like Ultimately, it is for the greater good that those people aren't around, but he can't accept the, like, thrill and exuberance over the death of one of Saw's creation, essentially. 
So like you said before, when Dej comes to him, he's trying to fix the man's name and face in his mind, look past the lineage of slavery on his face and the tattoos. And he notices that Etta has already marked him as her own. Yeah. He wears a sash of silk about his waist. The woman he had called her like a title, as if she were only a, the only woman aboard the ship, which was supposed that in a sense she was. I'll come right away, he responded to the man. So it's no, like you said, it's no longer former slave to the map face to whatever. It's now the man, Dej. Yes. And so he does go in. He softly knocks and Kenneth is awake. He is upset because he wants to sit up for when Sorkor comes aboard to report to him. And Wintrow says, well, Etta's right. You shouldn't be sitting up. Yeah, so Wintrow notices that Marietta is kind of getting ready for Sorkor to get on board of Vivacia, and Wintrow knows that there's going to be a report right, for what happened, and he comes into that scene of like, no, you can't sit up. <laughs> yes, so he's a, he's siding with Etta, but he's also trying to explain why. Like, he just started healing. If he sits up now, it'll make all of his insides loose or like move around and then blood the blood around a little bit more yeah yeah the way that he describes it obviously their uh their medical sense isn't the best right in this world however it's basically like your blood is kind of settled in your body and pooled in organs in certain ways and if you sit up that's all going to start draining to different areas and it'll push more blood out your wound yeah and you can't afford to do that you will probably die then yeah so like keep laying down and Kenneth doesn't want to hear it he doesn't want to look weak yeah he says this i learned well on the deck a pirate captain who can no longer actively lead his crew is soon fish bait I will be sitting up when Sorkor arrives here. Even if it kills you, Wintrow asked quietly. Are you challenging my will in this? Kenneth demanded abruptly. No, not your will. Your common sense. Why choose to die here in your bed for a certainty, simply to impress a man who impresses me as unfailing in his loyalty to you? I think you misjudge your crew. They will not turn on you over your need to rest. You're a puppy, Kenneth declared in disdain. He rolled his head away from the boy, choosing to look at the wall. What can you know of loyalty or how a ship is run? I tell you, I will not be seen like this. There was an edge in his voice that Wintrow suddenly recognized. Why didn't? Why did you not say that your pain was back? The quasi-rind essence can dull it again. You will think more clearly without agony distracting you. You will be able to rest. You mean I will be more tractable if you drug me, Kenneth snarled. You simply seek to impose your will upon me. He lifted a shaking hand to his brow. My head pounds with pain. How can that be due to my leg? Is it not more likely the result of some poison given me? Even in his weariness, the pirate managed to summon a look of sly amusement. Clearly, he supposed he had surprised Wintrow in a plot. So... Kenneth's back. <laughs> yeah, Kenneth's back. And Wintrow notices, like, how can I deal with such paranoia? <laughs> just yeah, like, there's man. nothing to do. Kenneth is convinced that everyone's out to get him. And even Wintrow, Wintrow's trying to kill him. There's a poison there, which logically doesn't make sense because that would mean that Wintrow has to die. Right. And but that's all that Kenneth knows, really. Yeah. He poisoned one crew. Uh, Igrit's crew, mm-hmm. and they all died, and 
mutinied against another one. Yeah. So like any captain who is incompetent or takes a, a lapse in his safety or judgment is going to get overthrown. That's what he knows. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me here where he is trying to confront Lintro about it of like, oh, I caught you. I don't know. It just, it's all he's known, but it also like, where's his common sense in this moment? Because if Wintrow was trying to poison you, why would he number one, admit that? And number two, what good would it be to say that, you know, that he's doing it? How right. is that going to stop him? <laughs> well, that's all that Kenneth has really, right? It's yeah. the the knowledge. He just wants to confront him and be like, I caught you. I guess. And to be fair, he is suffering from a wound right now. He's probably oh, yeah. a little feverish and in pain. He's Definitely not thinking clearly, um, because I think he'd be a little bit more sly if he was. <laughs> to, like, I think that it's all his normal thought process. It's just a little bit more clunky because he is yeah. sick, basically. So Wintrow's frustrated and's like, well, I'm not going to give you any medication until you want me. Until then, I won't see you. So you can sit up and then you die and then we both die. But I'm not going to argue against it anymore. <laughs> right. And Edda breaks in is like, stop it. I have a suggestion if you'll hear me out. And Kenneth says, it is. Do not receive Sorcor. Simply give him an order to sail for Bull Creek and we will follow him. He does not need to know how, you, how weak you are. By the time we arrive in Bull Creek, you may be stronger. A spark of cunning lit in Kenneth's eyes. Bull Creek is too close, he declared. Have him lead us back to Divitown. That will give me more time to recover. But Sorcor will surely wonder that I do not wish to hear his report. You will suspect something. Etta folded her arms across her chest. Say you are busy. With me. She gave him a small smile. Send the boy to give the word to Brig to pass to Sorcor. He will accept it. It might work, Kenneth assented slowly. He flapped a slow hand at Wintrow. Go now, right now. Tell Brig I am with Etta and do not wish to be disturbed. Pass on to him my orders that we are to head for Divitown. Kenneth's eyes narrowed, but from the... But from slyness or weariness, Wintrow could not tell. Suggest I may judge Briggs' seamanship by how well he manages the ship between here and there. Imply this is a test of his skill, not a lapse on my part. Wait a time until we are underway, then come back here. I will judge you by how well this task is done. Convince Brig and Sorcor, perhaps I will trust you to numb my leg for me. Kenneth's eyes closed contemplate completely. In a smaller voice, he added, Perhaps I shall let you live. So Kenneth is still himself, as you mentioned before. He is, mm -hmm. his pain has woken up. He's very, very distrustful and threatening to kill everybody and doesn't want any weakness to show on himself. And Edda has a sensible suggestion and Kenneth takes it. Yeah, and he definitely makes it his own. He um, has to extrapolate on it. But I do like that, you know, Kenneth had, or Edda had a really good idea. And yeah. Kenneth is using it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there's also that sense of he just can't give up the feeling of power. And he can't admit that he needs people's help or that he wants the quasi fruit to numb his leg right. because he tries to use the excuse of like, oh, I'm using you. I'm going to judge how you do on this to decide whether or not I trust you enough to put the fruit on me. And really what he wants to say is like please do that for me <laughs> right very interesting well thank you so much for tuning in this week we had a lot of discussion about 
you know, Wintro and, and how he's feeling and the attitudes of him towards Kenneth and him towards Vivacia and towards Ada. So mm-hmm. a big deep dive into Wintro here. So if you have thoughts about his character, where he's heading and his development, please let us know. You can email us at isfitshappy at gmail.com. You can go to our website, isfitshappy.com, and find all of our links to our other places like our social medias where you can comment, DM, you can go to any of the pla- uh, any of the places where you regularly hear your podcast and rate us, review us, let us know how we're doing. We always appreciate that and appreciate feedback. And uh, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Yeah. So now we get to talk about what you guys have written in. This week, we're going to talk about some comments made about Kefria and Malta's relationship, specifically about episode 160. 160, thank you, which is part one of the two-part chapter with Malta becoming engaged, or well, not engaged, but her first Starting meeting. Starting the courtship with yeah, Rain. Yeah. yeah, her first official meeting with Rain. And we talked in that episode a little bit about how I thought Malta was being too mature in her way of speaking about yeah how like oh we have to dress well because it looks good it was like a too logical and too mature of a thought uh, yeah. to convey for the point of maturation that Malta is at currently you thought it was just a little bit too ahead of itself yeah which was I think was really putting me off and I couldn't look around it in any way so thankfully Degenhart wrote in and gave a little bit of their perspective to let us know what they thought about the whole thing. And that is that Malta is really good about using the tools at her disposal. Right. And she knows what's going to hurt her grandmother and mother the most. And so being superficial, it's not necessarily that she was being so mature. It's that she saw that how you present yourself to other traders is really important to her grandmother and mother. And so she could use that to hurt them, not necessarily coming at it from a point of view of like, this is actually really important. So it came off as really mature, but it like is coming from a place of, I'm just trying to hurt my grandma and get one over. I think it's a little bit of both. I don't think it's just one or the other there. I really do think that she is also very, she's, uh, very uptight about her own appearance <laughs> yeah. towards society and wants to be viewed as the rich trader's daughter that is perfect in every way, right? We, we kind of talked about that too. Mm-hmm. Her appearance is very important to her, same as Kefria and Ronica. And I think this was a way to accomplish that while doing what Degenhart suggests. Yeah, which is hit her grandmother where it would hurt most. <laughs> right, exactly. And so, make her grandmother agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is a really good point. And oh, I Ronica just hates saying that I think so clearly. In fact, I think more clearly to the heart of things than she does. Yeah. She hates admitting that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely so that made me feel better about it of like I guess I didn't really consider the fact that just because it is a mature reasoning doesn't mean that the thought behind it was super mature right right (laughs) so that helps me accept it more i guess in the reading and not see it as weird so thank you Degenhart, for pointing that out 
And then we also have a comment from Cookie Baker about Kefria and Malta's relationship because we- you posed a question in the uh, the episode asking why do you think Kefria is less wary of Malta than her mother? Yes, because I really do think this is like a common theme. No matter what Malta does. Kefria still gives Malta the benefit of the doubt and still kind of right. sees her as a baby and still, yeah. I don't know. It just, she's just a baby. She's you know? just a baby. She doesn't know any better, you know? And like, she definitely doesn't have any malicious thoughts. <laughs> it's, I don't know. So it's really frustrating for me to re- like continue to see her make that mistake. Obviously she's a fictional character. She can't hear me, but, <laughs> but I posed the question to people who could, you guys asking what's going on in her head. And Cookie Baker said, that Kefria is trying to teach Malta, so she loves when she is seeing that Malta has learned and is acting more mature. Yeah, so that comment about what Dagenhart pointed out, you know, dressing to look the part and doing all mm-hmm. these things and turning on the charm for a mother, like, oh, you can teach me this rosebud stitch that I haven't learned yet and we'll put right. flowers and everything. That's really playing into Kefria's expectations of my my girl is learning she's becoming a woman she's actually you know going through what i've been teaching her and and picking up things yeah yeah which so I, is it creates a lot more leeway than ronica's sitting there very skeptical of what's happening <laughs> yes yeah so i definitely i like that and i like the thought process of like she's a little bit more susceptible it is her daughter number one, but also she's like trying to get Malta to be better. And so seeing progress in that way, of course, she's just going to be like, yeah, that's right. I still wish that she would be a little bit more wary, but like, it's hard because on the one hand, like Malta's a child and she deserves to be praised and she's doing something right. Even if it's not coming from a good place, like if she's behaving correctly, she should get praise. But on the same time, it's like Malta and we're seeing into her mind. She's so conniving and evil that I'm just like, who cares? <laughs> so I don't know. I'm, I'm very conflicted, but thank you yeah. for writing in and giving that perspective of why maybe Kefria is a little bit more susceptible to her, uh, to Malta's ways. Yeah. We love hearing from every one of you and all your thoughts and your opinions on what's going on with our discussions. Like when you join in. Yeah. Thanks guys.